0: So I I just got to say, Trey Corey is, he's a stud, man, I, I, uh, you know, it's kind of the call that no pastor really wants, Saturday afternoon, I just, I crashed hard and fast, went down with the flu, and I called Trey, I said, I just don't think I'm going to be able to make it, and uh, he said, no problem, I got this, right, so he didn't have hardly any prep time a couple weeks ago, just stepped in and preached for me, so it's sad not to be here, but um, I was under blankets shivering, and it just wouldn't have worked well. So I was thankful to Trey. Uh, you guys can turn to Luke chapter 10, It's so where we're, we're going to be this morning. We're going to be talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I actually, I remember very, very vividly the last time I was uh, preparing to preach this section of the, the text. Um, it was summertime, and uh, I finished my prep time, and I was leaving the office, and I was, I was in a summer hockey league. So I was driving to the ice rink. And as I was driving to the ice rink, I saw this, this dad and his daughter walking on the side of the road in their bathing suits and towels and flip flops and I'm looking at this scene going, uh, something's just not right about this. You know, they look like they need help, whatever. So, you know, I did what I had to do. I rolled down the window and I said, Hey, next week I'm gonna preach on the Good Samaritan, you should come. <laughs> I didn't actually I stopped, you know, I stopped and I gave him a ride and we talked, whatever. But I will confess I was uh, I was a reluctant neighbor at that. I mean, I I did my duty in part because I had just been studying the Good Samaritan, right? And I would have felt really guilty if I hadn't stopped. But you know, it's hard to be a neighbor, isn't it? Because I mean, if you're really, if you're going to be a good neighbor, it's going to cost you something. Uh, But we'd like to be connected with our neighbors for the most part. Uh, I've got a friend, actually a really close friend, who told me that uh, he would love to meet his neighbors, but he can't meet his neighbors because his neighbors they they drive into their driveway, they hit the the garage door opener, garage door opener goes up, they drive in, hit it, it goes down. Like they, he said, I never see my neighbors unless I happen to like be stalking, looking at the window when they go out to get their mail. I rush out, hey, you know, meet my neighbors. But you know, that's kind of part of the culture we live in. And what's ironic is that uh, for so many of our our neighbors, they have more virtual neighbors than they have real neighbors, right? Um, if you're under 25, you won't know what I'm talking about here, but there's a, an app called Nextdoor. If you're over 25, your parents have this app, right? Um, it's it's uh, virtual neighbors who are trying to make real neighbors, right? They're, they're trying to create a, a genuine connection through their virtual connections in their neighborhood. So um, it, it doesn't always work well. I, I got a couple screenshots for you. These are, these are real screenshots from uh, Nextdoor app. Illegal Chinese New Year fireworks. Don't forget to report your neighbors using illegal fireworks this Chinese New Year. Now, notice the response. Wow, it truly is the year of the rat. Isn't that awesome? That's for real, that's legit. Here's another good one. Please help, I'm out of butter. Please drop a stick at the corner of between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. today. I don't want to meet people, I don't want new friends, I just need butter, butter's important to me. I'm not, I'm not kidding. These are real. Some of them are really bad. Like, they're really worse. They're not Sunday morning appropriate at all. So, uh, but here's, here's an analog version of this. Taped to a front door. Quit slamming your car doors late at night. There's a noise ordinance. Stupid neighbors. <laughs> oh, man. But, I, you know, I, I've felt that before. I remember uh, we lived uh, in uh, Edelweiss years ago, and we had these neighbors who had this really yippy dog. You know, and if you know anything about me, like, Pets. Not just cats, dogs too, but I just, I don't, this morning I was thinking, you know, I have like a pet connection problem. I just don't really, we now have cats running in our house and I bought my wife a dog and I just don't connect. And so, you know, neighbors have this dog, yip, 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 right? And they went out of town and forgot to put the dog inside. So all weekend long, the dog just, and I will confess, I literally thought about harming that dog. You know, how could I, how could I get away with this? I didn't, but it's hard to be a neighbor, right? Because it's going to cost you something. But what if we were willing to pay the cost? What if we were willing to to rearrange our lives and experience the inconvenience so that we could be neighbors? What would that look like? Well, Jesus told a parable that kind of answers that question, Good Samaritan, one of the most famous parables Jesus ever told and one of my absolute favorites. And if you're not there already, Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to start in verse 25. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, A lawyer stood up, And put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in this interchange that we're about to go through, there are three questions that are asked and three questions that are answered. The first question is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you may have noticed uh, that it's an expert in the law that asks the question. So the man's probably a Pharisee. Uh, he's, he's probably a professional theologian, doesn't work a job. He just sits around with his friends and discusses and debates theology all day long, right? I mean, that's probably who this guy is. And one of the questions that they have been discussing and debating a lot in Jesus' day is this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you go all the way back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Uh, By Jesus' day, there was this really well-developed eschatology, right, end times. Uh, and, And in their eschatology, their understanding was that Messiah would return, and when he returned, there would be a resurrection of everyone. There would be some who would be resurrected who were righteous, and they would enter into the kingdom of the Messiah, and then others who were resurrected who were unrighteous, and they would go away to judgment. And so the discussion that was ongoing in Jesus' day was this, how do we get in? Right? How do we participate in that resurrection of the righteous and join Jesus in his kingdom? And so he asked Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as a good teacher, doesn't answer his question. Right? He puts it back on the man. Verse 26 says, he said to him, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? You're an expert in the law and we share in common that we believe the law is the authority in our lives. How does it read to you? And so the expert in the law answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, he answers, uh, love God and love others perfectly. That's it. Jesus' response, he says, you have answered correctly. Do this and live. But Jesus says, you know, you nailed it. In fact, when Jesus was asked, Uh, What's the great commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the entire law and the prophets. In other words, here's a summary of the entire Old Testament. Love God perfectly. Love others perfectly. And Jesus says, then you can have eternal life. Easy, right? Is Jesus actually saying if you love God perfectly and you love others perfectly, you could have eternal life? maybe, sort of, but it's a hypothetical truth, but in reality, it's absolutely and utterly impossible. No one ever can. No one ever will, right? So what's Jesus doing? Well, he's setting the guy up. This is exactly what he did when the, with the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler came and he asked a question? You remember the question he asked? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know all the commandments. Don't steal. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said, awesome, I've nailed it, right? From the time I was a child, I've done all of those commandments. And Jesus goes, oh, 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 wait, I almost forgot, just one more thing. You need to go sell all of your possession, give your money to the poor and follow me. So was Jesus telling the rich young ruler that if he sold all of his possessions and followed Jesus, he could earn eternal life? No, what Jesus was doing was he was revealing the brokenness in the man's heart. Because he had lots of stuff and he loved his stuff. And so every day he was breaking the commandment, thou shalt not covet. Right? So what the rich young ruler should have done in that moment is he should have said, I can't do that. Because I have greed in my heart. Jesus, will you help me? But instead, the rich young ruler, we're told, went away sad. <laughs> right. What this... Expert in the law should have done in this moment is he should have said, you know what, I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I don't love my neighbor as myself, right? When, when we have a proper understanding of the righteous standard of God, we should fall on our knees before God and say, we can't, right? We can't. Because the ultimate standard is the perfection of God. You want to enter into eternal life, you have to be perfect as God is perfect. And you can't, but you can fall on your knees and say, God, help me. And he says, I have, I've helped you in Jesus. I'm going to give you Jesus' perfection in place of your imperfection, and then you can have eternal life as a free gift. That's the gospel, right? But the rich young ruler didn't. He went away sad. This man didn't respond appropriately, what happens when we actually believe the gospel and we're broken before the gospel, God forgives our sins, he puts the spirit in us, and then he, he transforms us into people who actually do love our neighbors. Right? But instead, the man asks uh, a second question. He says this, so who is my neighbor? Right? Read with me verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So uh, what's he doing here? He's well, He's dodging we are saying, where can I draw the line that these are my neighbors and these are not my neighbors, right? Can I, can I set the bar low enough <laughs> that I can actually hurdle over it and inherit eternal life? Where can I draw a boundary and say, I'm responsible here, but I'm not responsible there? So Jesus answers him. So well, a neighbor is actually anyone who is near and in need. Literally in Greek, the word neighbor is one who is near. One who is near. So Jesus says to him, in essence, you don't get to draw a boundary and say, I'm responsible here and I'm not responsible there. But Jesus doesn't doesn't actually answer this directly. Instead, he says, you know what? Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. Read with me chapter 10 and verse 30. So Jesus replied, and he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now it says literally, "A man, a certain man, any man." In other words, Jesus is saying, right from the beginning of his story, it doesn't really matter. He doesn't tell the man's name, he doesn't tell his background, doesn't tell where he's from, he doesn't tell anything about it, because it doesn't matter. Because the point of Jesus' parable is, you don't get to set boundaries. You don't set limits. So a certain man, anyway, man, he's going from this, on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls among robbers, they strip him, beat him, leave, leave him half dead, and by chance a priest was going down on that road. It just so happens, as fate would have it, there's a priest, and remember this is a Jewish audience, and they say to themselves, awesome, he, what good fortune for this man. Because who's most righteous in our society? The priests. I mean, if anyone's going to stop, and be a neighbor to this man, it'll be the priest. These are the, the ones who, who, who mediate the blessings of God to the people. They stand between God and the people and they help us offer sacrifice and they bring our prayers. Right? This is the, this is the exact person who, who should show up. It just so happens by chance that a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Ooh. Okay, that's not good. But likewise, also, a Levite... Well, okay, if the priest didn't stop, the Levites are... They're, they're just below the priest. They're the priest's helpers. Right? They're, they're assisting the priest in the worship of the people. If the priest wouldn't stop, well, then surely the Levite would stop. So no, uh, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. Ugh. But now here's the twist. But then a Samaritan who was on a journey... <laughs> If remember, if, if you're listening this first time, you're a Jewish audience, this is the point in time where the whole audience goes, boo, hiss, right? It's a Samaritan. Be like, in this setting, if I said, and a T-sip happened to walk by, you go, snow, you know? Ah, boo, we hate them. They're bad. They're the worst, right? So Jesus says a Samaritan happened to be walking by, and they hated the Samaritans. I mean, really, literally. They absolutely hated them. The background of the Samaritans is this. when When the kingdom divided after Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, split the kingdom. So there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was called Israel. Southern kingdom was called Judah. In 722, the northern kingdom was taken into exile by the Assyrians. But what they did is they just took part of the population away and then they brought in people from other lands so that they would intermarry and wouldn't rise up in rebellion against the Assyrians. So the Samaritans are this mixed breed of Jews and people from other nations from the, around the ancient Near East. So they're not racially pure. And the Jews despised them. And their worship wasn't pure. They didn't go to Jerusalem. They went to Mount Gerizim and worshipped. And they didn't accept the entire law, only the first five books of the Bible. And so th- they looked upon them in their impure race and their impure genetics, their impure worship. And the Jews absolutely and utterly despised the Samaritans. In fact... Uh, If if a Jew is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, the most direct route is the central ridge route. It goes straight through Samaria. But the Jews wouldn't go that way. Instead, they'd go out to the Jordan River and around and take the long route. So they didn't have to have any contact with the Samaritans. So the priest doesn't stop, who, who should have. And the Levite doesn't stop. But then a Samaritan shows up. It says, but a Samaritan who is on a journey came upon him and when he saw him he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them and he put, them on, put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So the expert in the law is trying to set a boundary. He's saying, you know, can I lower the standard so I'm responsible to these people when I'm not responsible to these people. And Jesus said, no, you can't actually set a boundary. But why does he want to set a boundary? Because he doesn't want to do anything more, right? He doesn't want to to be stretched because it's costly to be a neighbor, Needy neighbors cost you. First thing they cost you is they cost you time. The Samaritan is on a journey. He's almost certainly... uh, A merchant, this is a merchant pathway, and he has to stop his journey. He stops his journey, he bandages the man, he takes care of the man, puts him on his donkey, then he spends the night, right? It costs him time. Which I would argue is our most valuable commodity. But if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to have to give time. There was a fascinating study that was done back in the 1970s with uh, Princeton Seminary students. So this research group wanted to figure out, why do, why do people do good deeds? So they thought, we'll go to seminary students, right, because they're a bunch of do-gooders, and we'll try and figure out what motivates them to do good. Are they intrinsically motivated or extrinsically motivated? In other words, intrinsic is uh, we love God and we care about people. Extrinsic is uh, I want to get into heaven, right? There's an extr- extrinsic uh, fear factor. So they gave them surveys to try to determine are they motivated intrinsically or extrinsically. At the end of the surveys, they had them read through the parable of the Good Samaritan. And after reading through the parable, they said, we want you to take 30 minutes and put together a short talk on the Good Samaritan. Then you're going to go and you're going to deliver this talk on the Good Samaritan, right? So they've been taking a survey trying to discern, are you intrinsically motivated to good de- do good deeds? And we know you do good deeds. And then they read the Good Samaritan. And then they put a talk together on the Good Samaritan. And then they were going to send them across campus to deliver this talk. And they divided the groups into three. Uh, a third of the group, they said, when they finished preparing their talk, they said, look, you got plenty of time, just take your time to get over there. Then a third of the group, they said, well, we're done right on time, you need to get moving, but you'll make it on time, no problem. And then a third of the group, they said, we're running a bit late, the surveys went long, it took you a little long to prepare your talk, so you need to get moving, you're running late, right? And so here's the wrinkle, as they sent them across campus, they had to go through an alley to get to the other building, and laying in the alley was an injured man. And to get to the building where they were going to deliver their talk on the Good Samaritan, they literally had to step over the injured man. Right? 60% of the seminary students did not stop. <laughs> this is after taking surveys, reading the Good Samaritan, preparing a talk on the Good Samaritan. Right? They determined the only distinguishing factor is whether or not they felt they had time. The people who stopped were the ones who felt they had time. Now, this is crazy, but this is true. The first time I prepared to do a talk on the Good Samaritan was for a seminary class. And I was running late to my class. And I was going across the parking lot. And Dallas Seminary is in a not a great neighborhood. And as I was trying to get to my class, I was stopped by a street person who needed help. I'm not making this up, right? I stopped by the street person, and so, you know, again, I did what I had to do. I, I skipped class, I took him to lunch, I shared the gospel, he's now a missionary. None of that's true. That's not true at all. <laughs> I, that didn't happen. Uh, it, and I, I really, it didn't, so I said, man, I can't help you right now. I think I gave him a couple dollars or something, and I ran to class feeling guilty the whole time, really feeling guilty, saying, oh, God, please give me one more chance to meet that man, right? It's when, like when somebody's sitting next to you and you don't share the gospel, you go, oh, I feel guilty. Let me give me one more shot. <laughs> Let me meet that person again. But I didn't stop because I felt like I didn't have time. If you're going to be a good neighbor, you're going to have to sacrifice time. You might have to sacrifice money. The Samaritan had to use his own resources. He takes out his oil and soothes the wound. He uses his wine to clean and disinfect. Takes one of his garments and has to tear it up and make bandages. He puts him in an inn and he gives the innkeeper two denarii, which is enough for 24 days of room and board. He says, but I'm going to come back and if there's any more debt, I will pay it all. With no expectation to be repaid because the man's been robbed, right? He has nothing. If you're going to be a good neighbor, it's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you Money. It's going to cost you uh, physical energy often. Uh, this is a photo of what's known as the Pass of Adumim. It's part of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is up on, on the ridge. It's about 2,400 feet above sea level. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. Right? So it's a 3,200 foot drop over the course of 17 miles Uh, This is a picture in the background of St. George's Monastery. But in Jesus' day, there there was no place to stop, right? So if you decide to take the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, you've got to make the whole journey in a day. But the man stops. He uses his oil, his wine, tears up his garment, puts bandages on the man, and then, because the man can't walk, he puts him on his beast of burden, and he walks the rest of the way. And he walks the rest of the way. 17-mile journey. It's going to cost you time, it's going to cost you money, it's going to cost you energy. Sometimes it might even put you at risk. In Jerome's day, this pathway was known as the red and bloody way. Because if you went on this path, you were likely to encounter robbers and bandits along the way. They would hide in caves, and you can see as you're turning a corner, they could jump out. Or they'd put blood of an animal on one of their members and lay them in the road as a decoy. People would stop and then they'd pounce on them. He's taking a risk. In other words, the Samaritan had a lot of good reasons not to stop. And he could have said to himself, this Jew would not have stopped for me. But he stopped. He stopped because he didn't didn't draw a boundary and say, I'm responsible to these people, but I'm not responsible to these people. And so Jesus answered his question. He said, a neighbor is literally the one who is near and in need, but in fact, Jesus goes a little bit further. He says, the problem with you, expert in the law, is that you're actually asking the wrong question. Read with me in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? In other words, Jesus says, the real question is not who is my neighbor, where can I draw a boundary? The real question is this, who proved to be a neighbor? To whom can you be a neighbor? In other words, right, not where do I draw the boundary... But where is the opportunity? Who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37. And the expert in the law said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said, go do the same. Now, I don't know if you notice anything interesting about his answer, but he can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan, right? He says, the one who showed mercy. Jesus says, there's your answer. Go do the same. So, I have a fourth question for us this morning, it's this. Are you a good neighbor? Are you a good neighbor? I think our biggest barrier is, is that sense of time, right? We, we just don't have time, and the needs are overwhelming. If you turn on the news, it's, it's, it's a crisis that's, that's overwhelming the world, you know, it's, coronavirus, it's climate change, and you know, not to mention all the needs in our among our own friends and family, it's just completely overwhelming. You say, I can't do it all. And you're right, you can't do it all. No one can do it all. Right? No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. Right? And that's what we have to lock in our minds. You, you can't, you're right, you cannot do it all, but you can do something. Right? So this is the first application point, it's just do something. The reason, One of the reasons Jesus picked a Samaritan is, For this Jewish audience, if a Samaritan can be a neighbor, well, anybody can be a neighbor, right? Now that said, I don't want you to walk out of here just saying to yourself, okay, well, I need to do more. I don't want you to do that. Because the first transaction that has to happen is that you believe in the gospel. And you realize that you can't do enough. If you just walk out here and say, I need to do more, then what usually happens is you feel... Uh, pride because you've done more than the other people around you, or you feel fear. Maybe I haven't done enough, or you feel angry because people around you aren't doing enough themselves, right? But that's not that's not what the world needs from us. The world needs a, a, a supernatural kind of neighborliness that they can't explain, right? It's not just you are out there going, doing good stuff, but you are doing good stuff with with a heart and an attitude that's inexplicable apart from Jesus Christ. That only comes by the power of the Spirit, right? Only by the power of the Spirit. It's not just go do more good things, right? But we do things by the power of the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit, so it's not just duty, but it becomes the longing of our heart. Okay. But you can do that because you do in fact have the Spirit of God living inside of you. So my first application is, is do something because you can, anyone can. Um, but also do something because uh, we do have a debt, right? Romans one first verse, verse 14, it says... Paul's writing, he says, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Paul says, because I've received so richly from Jesus, I'm a debtor to everyone. And he says, I don't, I don't draw any boundaries between Greeks and barbarians and wise and foolish. I'm a debtor, I'm a debtor to all. And it's not a debt that, that I can repay, actually. It's just a debt that I carry through life. Because Jesus has given me everything. Right? Everything you have. Your, your physical body, your mind, your time, your money, your re- absolutely everything. It's just a stewardship that you have given to God through Jesus Christ to you. And everyone around you has a need. Right? Do something because there, there's needs all around you. All you've got to do is just scratch the surface and you will discover that everyone around you is, has, has some brokenness and there's, there's a need. It was uh, the Roman statesman Seneca, Seneca who said, wherever there's a human being, there's an opportunity for Kindness. Wherever there's a human being, there's an opportunity for kindness. Uh, Interestingly, in 2008, ABC News redid this same study that had been done with the Princeton Seminary students. But this time, they threw in one extra little wrinkle. And it was this. They rotated the injured man between a black man and a white man. They rotated between a black man and a white man. And what was interesting in the study is people stopped to help the white man three times more. Maybe in your mind you're kind of creating some solutions. Um, I saw a picture of the black man, very nice, neat haircut, he's wearing a polo shirt. He he doesn't look look threatening at all, right? And it didn't actually matter if the participants were white or black themselves. Three times more often people stopped to help the white man than the black man. Now, right now some of you are feeling kind of uncomfortable. And the reason for that is that I prayed that God would allow me to make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I literally, literally did. I've, I've been praying that all week, and i prayed it again this morning. I prayed that God would allow me to help you feel a bit uncomfortable because we feel uncomfortable with the, the subject of race. We do. Um, but, you know, it's still a huge issue in our nation. Unless your head is just buried deeply within the sand... Race is a really big and important issue in our country. And it's, it's become even, it's inflamed again more so in the last 10 years. And it would be wrong of me to, to go through this passage and not bring up the issue of race because race is at the very center of the parable that Jesus is telling, right? The Jews were incredibly racially prejudiced against the Samaritans and the Samaritans were racially prejudiced against the Jews. And so Jesus put race, he infused it right into the middle of this this story to show You know, you can't draw boundaries anywhere when it comes to loving your neighbor. A neighbor is anyone who's near and in need. And church, if if we can't have the courage to talk about race and how we love across racial, racial lines, then no one can because ultimately the gospel is the answer to this. Because the gospel is the thing that that forces us to see people made in the image of God first before we see any externalities in the way that they're created. So my exhortation to you is this. Find a Jericho road and get on a Jericho road. Get on a road that's outside of your normal lane because it's easy to live your life Right, in your narrow lane, just interacting with people who are exactly like you. And so it takes effort. And church, we should be the ones who take the effort to get into other lanes, to get onto a Jericho Road that's a bit risky, that's going to cause us to encounter people who are different from us and people who are needy and, and who are drawing us out and challenging us. Church, find that Jericho Road. Uh, Trey was telling me that uh, he is, his team has created a card for you. You should have received one of these. I saw them on the uh, welcome desk as I was walking in, it says Community Connections. Uh, here at Southwood Campus, you guys have four community partners. Uh, and, and these partnerships give you opportunities to be around people who are, are not like you and will stretch you. The Community Habitat for Humanity Brazos Church Pantry uh, over at Anderson. We connect with SOS Ministries. It doesn't matter which campus you go to. There are some opportunities, but, but you have to exert some effort to get off of your normal path onto a pathway with people who are different from you. So my first exhortation to you is this. Do something. Second, do something in the name of Jesus. And and the reason I say that is, church, uh, we're better than the Peace Corps. Okay, we're better than the Peace Corps. Why? Because we have the gospel. Anyone can go and build a well, but only the church can build a well and tell people where the true water of life comes from. So if you dig a well or you build a house or you clothe someone or you feed someone but you don't get to the gospel, you have not done good. You need to get to the gospel. It may not be the first conversation but you have to have that longing, desire and goal to get to the gospel because if people have food and water and housing and clothing but they don't have Jesus, then they're going to spend an eternity separated from him. Their greatest need, whether they feel it or not, is for the gospel. The the presenting need that, that comes to you may be for food or water or housing, or it may be an emotional need, but there is a transcendent need, which is the need for Jesus. So church, what we bring is we bring the gospel. So do good, but as a church, we do good in the name of Jesus. That's what sets us apart. Now, as we close this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. So, if I could ask the servers to go back, and as they're getting prepared, I'm going to give you one more application point, and it's this Uh, Do something and then stop doing something. Do something but then stop. And what I mean by that is that, that you're right, you can't do everything, you have limits. You live in a, in a physical body that you need to eat and you need to sleep, right? You need rest, you need recovery. Uh, you have 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, that's all you have. There, there are limitations. And, you know, even Jesus lived himself within those limitations, right? So he only did ministry on earth for 3 years, uh, he only traveled about 100 mi- in a hundred mile area. He didn't go throughout the whole world. There's an interesting story in Luke chapter 4 where it says that uh, Jesus was uh, healing people and he was, he was feeding people and he's, he's, he's doing miracles and uh, he's teaching people and then uh, he's going all night long, gets to the morning, right? And morning comes and Jesus slips away for a period of time to be by himself and then his disciples come and they grab him and say, Jesus, the people are back. And he said, you know what? We're out. we're out, we got to go, we got to go, and and he leaves that village and goes to another village, and he leaves some people disappointed, they didn't get to hear Jesus preach, they they, they didn't get healed, maybe their children didn't get healed, he didn't do everything, he lived within these limitations, and he frequently with his disciples, he said, you know, we've been going, going, and giving, and giving, now we need to come aside, you haven't had time to eat, we need to eat a meal, we need to rest, we need to pray, and Jesus would say, you know what, I've been giving even to you guys, and I need to be away from you, I've been doing good, but now I need to stop, and, I need, and I, I need to be in a rhythm, and we all have to learn that rhythm of life. What's interesting about this story is, I mean, you can almost hear the mic drop, right, when Jesus says, the Samaritan's the hero, boom, I'm out, right, and then what he does is he leaves them, and he goes to the house of Martha and Mary. You remember what happens to the house of Martha and Mary? Martha's scurrying around and she's doing, doing, and she's making meals, right? And she's helping and saying, Jesus, Mary's just sitting at your feet. She needs to do more, do more, do more. And Jesus says, no, actually, in this moment, Mary is making the better choice, right? This is the good decision. Martha, you should stop and you should sit and you should worship. This is the same Mary who a short time later would take an alabaster vial of perfume and she would break the neck. Pour out that nard, the aromatic oil, onto Jesus' feet, wipe his feet with her hair, the scent fills the whole room of the story. And the disciples, beginning with Judas, but all of them were told, they say, Why this waste? We could have taken that money, sold the perfume, and given to the poor. That's pretty logical, right? Jesus says, you know, actually, the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. In this moment, the best thing to do is worship. Now, interestingly, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, that says, the poor you always have with you, therefore be generous. In other words, uh, give, but then stop giving and worship. Because when you worship, you have have this this reset. You're reminded that um, only God is great that he's worthy of our best, that all that we have is a gift from him. It's just a stewardship, right? We have this reset. We're reminded that, that we have strength and power to give because God has given us so much. And then we, we leave that place of worship refreshed to give to those who have need. And you have to find that rhythm. And so for some of you, your application point this morning needs to be that you just need to stop and rest. You may literally need to just take a nap, right? Because you're just going, 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 doing, 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 And when you live your life that way, what happens is you begin to feel proud. You're doing more than people around you. You feel angry that they're not doing enough. You feel maybe fearful that you're not doing enough right. You you haven't had a a reset. And some of you just may need to stop. Some of you, uh, you may need to start. You may need to, to figure out some uncomfortable places that you need to go. A Jericho Road that's outside your normal lane. And let God stretch you a bit. Or some of you, the Lord just may be saying to you this morning, I need you to think about your rhythm Right? You're, you're doing these things, but you're out of rhythm. Let's think about the rhythm. And so, as we close in communion, this is an opportunity for us, in a sense, to reset the rhythm. Um, we're going to take bread, which is a symbol of Christ's body broken for us, the cup, which is his blood poured out for us. We're reminded uh, that we were purchased by God. So, all that we have, all that we are, is a gift from him. And because we've been enriched so deeply, then we can give. So if I could ask the servers to come forward, Uh, we will wait until uh, everyone is served, and then we'll take the bread and the cup together. John chapter 6, this is what Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the Father's ate and died. He who eats of this bread will live forever. Now, unfortunately, they thought Jesus was speaking literally, and so some said, oh, we, "We can't handle that. We're not going to eat flesh. We're not, we're not cannibals." Uh, what he was saying was, "To eat and drink was as a metaphor for believing." The moment that you believe the body broken for you, Jesus and his blood shed for you, counts to remove your debt of sin and give you eternal life. Right, so to eat and to drink was, was a symbol, was a metaphor. And then Jesus later would tell his disciples, I want you to, to remember this moment. I want you to take bread, break it, and remember that I suffered for you. My body was literally broken because I was, I was whipped and beaten and crucified. And I want you to remember when you take the cup it's full of red wine that is a symbol of my blood poured out. I, I suffered all the way to the point of death so your debt of sin could be removed fully, finally, completely, and forever. And I want you to remember that because right? that, that's the center of your life. That's the reason you go out and, and do good, not to earn anything, but because you've received life from Jesus. So let's take the bread together. Jesus, we thank you that you were unwilling to set a boundary and say, uh, I'll die for these and not for these. Instead, uh, there was no boundary. You gave your life uh, completely for all the sins of every man, woman, and child who would ever live. And your sacrifice was adequate because you are the son of God. So we thank you for giving us life. We thank you for giving us uh, purpose and hope. And I pray, Father, that, that you'd give us those moments, those opportunities, maybe get outside of our own lanes and, and be with people who are different who have needs. And when we see those needs, Lord, stir up that compassion within us that your son had for us. And teach us to do, to do good, not out of a sense of mere duty, but because we've received so richly from you.